0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. Today's innovations are tomorrow's possibilities. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to Trillions. I'm Joel Weber. And I'm Eric Balchunas.
2: You've been on this book reading uh, binge... Eric,
1: ever since you published your book, and we have an author here today, who'd, who'd you bring us? Yeah, um, when I publish my book, there's always a couple of books like below that says, people who bought this like this one, you know that thing, and this one's always there, and it's somebody I know from um, Ridholtz, and it's Nick Majuli, and his book is called Just Keep Buying, which is somehow, I feel, linked to the book I wrote, which was, I mean, there's no way Jack Bogle would disagree with this premise. And what I liked about it is, it's very practical, it's a really good book, it explains why you want to invest, how to invest, and it splits between savings and investing. And savings actually is, is important as well. It's half the battle. And I just, it's really laid out very well. I like some of the anecdotes. And I also think I've come, my theory is that we're in an, in an investor enlightenment era. And the first phase was just to get the friction out of the way, low costs, index funds. The second phase of this era is behavior. And there's a lot of behavior in here. You know, once you understand why you're investing, how it works, what to use. It's very easy to behave. If you don't know any of that, your emotions take, get the best of you. So I think that's a big part of this book as well. And, um, but this year is a crazy year for the market. So I think it's, a good, it's in, an interesting title, Just Keep Buying, for this year. Maybe it's even more important title this year. So uh, yeah, I thought we would be cool to dig into this um, and get kind of practical So joining us on Trillions this time,
2: we've got Nick Majuli, who's the Chief Operating Officer and Data Scientist at Ritholtz Wealth Management. This time on Trillions, just keep buying. Nick, welcome to Trillions. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Okay, so three-word title. I've said it a few times already, just keep buying. Uh, what else do I need to know? Because that's what I'm doing, man. I'm just I just keep buying. What what I, what could you possibly feel in a book other than those three words?
3: I mean that's it's I'm saying if I can only give you three words, those are the three words I can give you, right? Those are the three words I would give you. But um to expand on that, it's the you know continual purchase of a diverse set of income producing assets if I could give you a sentence. But then even beyond that, the book's not just about dollar cost averaging. Obviously, some people are just like, oh, that's obviously it. I'm not gonna read it. Like, no, there's a lot more to it. There's a lot of pieces of savings about personal finance, things like how do I save for a house? You know, am I saving enough for retirement? How much should I save for retirement? You know, why should I invest? You know, what should I think about market volatility, et cetera, all those types of things. Okay, so I said your
2: job title, chief operating officer and data scientist. Mm-hmm. What did Barry, who's a frequent guest on oh, yeah,
0: the podcast, on a lot. <laughs> yeah. uh,
3: what did Barry say when you were like, hey, I'm going to write this book? Uh, he was. I kind of just told him after I was already writing it. Actually, like it's not like I said like get approval. I was like, Hey, yeah, I'm don't writing ask this book. Yeah. yeah, I was like, uh, Yeah, I'm writing a book, Barry. He's like, Okay, great. Yeah, he's like, You put out enough stuff now. I think you can probably come up with something. i was like, Okay, cool. Thanks, appreciate that, Barry. So yeah, and I did basically. But no, he's he's always been supportive. I mean, I love Barry. I'm obviously you know not just because he's like one of my bosses, but because you know Barry's just a great guy to be around. And you know, I, I believe in the vision that we're building there. So yeah, um,
1: I, just how'd you get the title? I love. There's a little anecdote in here, and I I love that you were able to find this title through uh, something you saw. Can you go through that story, how the title came to you?
3: Yeah, so there's this, uh, so Casey Neistat is like a YouTuber, and you guys may have heard of him. He used to, I think, I don't know if he YouTubes as much now as he used to, but he used to do like a daily vlog, and he was in New York City. And he had a he had a video called, you know, Three Words to Get to 3 Million Subs, right? And he, there was another YouTuber named Roman Atwood, and he gave him this advice. He said, if you want to get to, you know, want to really grow your audience, you know, I'm just going to give you three, three words of advice, just keep uploading. And so his, that was his mantra. Every day I need to upload a video, every day I need to upload a video. He kept doing it. And Casey sit now is like one of the biggest YouTubers ever. Um, and actually I use that. Um, I remember hearing that right around the same time I was doing some analysis on the US stock market. And I realized like, wait, just keep uploading, just keep buying. It kind of fits. It's a, it's a catchier way of saying dollar cost averaging. When you say dollar cost averaging, people's eyes glaze over, I think this, This is a catchier way and actually is a more aggressive investment allocation approach. And really, this actually, that intro chapter kind of came from a blog post I wrote literally, you know, uh, five years to the day before the book came out, it was just by chance that that happened. Was orig- the book supposed to come out earlier, but due to supply chain stuff, we had to push it a couple uh, oh, two yeah, months. The, the yeah, had the great paper shortage. Yeah, the great paper shortage. Once that was sorted out, though, I realized like, oh my gosh, that's weird. Like literally five years to the day before the book came out, like that was when I wrote the blog post. Just keep buying, which is arguably my first post that really kind of like went did well for me as a blogger. Right when I didn't really have an audience and kind of kind of blew up a little bit relative to to my audience at the time, like so twelve was, people. Like, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> went from twelve people to, like. 50 people. I was like, wow, this is... Guys, we've got I'm, a banger I'm on, here. I'm on fire. Yeah, we got a okay. banger here. You
2: dropped a, a phrase there, dollar cost averaging. Break that down because that's not something that we've really ever talked about on the on the podcast before. So
3: the issue... I, I have an issue with this word because there's two different definitions out there. And if you're not careful, you'll use both of them without realizing it. So the traditional definition, which Benjamin Graham, I think, came up with was just buying over time, right? So if you have a 401k, you're making contributions every two weeks, every month, whatever, that's considered dollar cost averaging. You're investing as soon as you get the money that's what it's about There's another definition. This is a definition I do not like, and I try not to use this definition, which is, let's say you just got an inheritance of $100,000 and you slowly kind of average that into the market. So you don't put it on, you don't buy $100,000 worth of stocks now. You don't lump some, you you dollar cost averaging is what they would say. I do not like that definition. I do not use that term. I don't use dollar cost averaging for that term because I think it's so confusing. You can see those are very different things. Buying as soon as you have the money, even in small increments, is very different than taking a large amount of money and slowly averaging it. Those are very different strategies. And that second strategy, the, the averaging in, um, is subpar across the board. I've tested it every way to Sunday, and it just does not outperform. So.
2: Relates to lottery winnings. Yeah.
3: It's
1: right. also, <laughs> it, that, that term is just, for most normal people, it's, it sounds financial and it's boring. Yeah, I agree. For some reason, dollar cost averaging. But it's, it is It's powerful. Um, let's. you broke this book down into two parts. The first half is on savings mm-hmm. and I like the way at the beginning he's like look if, if you have enough money saved just go to the second part. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I won't be offended. Um, yeah. Uh, I. I, I which, did which the second part is investing. Which yeah. is investing. Yeah. But here's a, a, a line in here that sounds it, it stuck out to me. It almost mm-hmm. sounds harsh but it's true which is saving is for the poor and investing is for the rich. Um, and you go to explain that but I guess just Talk about what that means, you know. If you're have if you're young or don't make a lot of money, mm-hmm. investing might not be as uh, the ticket you think it is early on. And I guess just explain that that dynamic there. Yeah, I just
3: think that. I mean, we can just do this with a simple example. The issue is just like investing is not that impactful when you don't have that much money invested. For example, and I, I the story I tell in the first chapter, I was 23 years old. I had a thousand dollars to my name. I was analyzing my investments every way possible. I was like, and, you know, oh, what should I have? Five percent bonds, ten percent bonds, you know, fifteen percent. I was neurotic basically. But at the end of the day, I only had a thousand dollars invested. Even if I got a 10% return on my portfolio, which is like a, a good year, you know, what is that, a hundred bucks? Like I was at the same time I was going out with my friends in San Francisco and blowing that hundred dollars on dinner, drinks, you know, Uber home, whatever. Like it was very easy to blow that hundred dollars. So you can see that my investment returns didn't really matter, but my spending in a given day mattered a lot more, right? I'm not not saying that tell you not to go out with your friends or anything. That's not the point of that. The point of that story is to say, when you don't have a lot of money to invest, it doesn't really matter. What you should be focusing on is your career and how much you can save. And then once you have some money saved up and ready to invest, or you've invested already, that's where that that lever matters more. So it's about, it's about just like where you focus your attention and where you kind of get the biggest return for your use of time. And so I think for when I say savings for the poor, investing for the rich, I mean that on a, absolute and a relative sense. Like, I wouldn't consider myself a poor person as a 22-year-old living in San Francisco. I was not poor, but I was poor relative to my future self. And that's kind of how I want you to think about it. Not like, I was in abject poverty. I'm not trying to say that at all. Um, But just think about that. Like, whether you're poor on an absolute level or on a relative level to your future self, that's how I want you to think about that problem and how you make decisions.
2: First of all, I just love that simplicity of that breakdown, right? Like, you you can't invest until you save. Mm -hmm. You can't save until you actually figure out how to Make more money and mm-hmm. and actually you know be diligent in your savings and there is sort of that that transition between your younger self and an older self that might be able to, to 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 get there but you still have to figure out a way to start investing right and so I'm curious in the book like how do you write about turning that corner and going from somebody who who might not be able to save to to actually being able to like invest because I think that that's there's a huge Financial literacy component there, where people do, are just intimidated, not in a market, not in the market. I'm speaking very broad terms because the last year has been insane, and a lot of people did get in and bought high and have mm-hmm. witnessed the carnage. But how do you talk to how do you talk talk to people in general
3: about that switch to becoming investors? I mean, I think the main thing is obviously you're right. Once you have some money to invest, like I think, actually, if I'd written this book in 2019, I think that question would have been a lot more. It would have been a lot more difficult to answer because they're you know investing wasn't as forefront as it is now yeah. like, due to Robinhood. Cash it Just up. became like yeah, you know, every, yeah. everybody's armchair. So, chair so everyone kind of knows. I think not everyone. I mean of course there's still people that don't. There are people unbanked all that stuff. But I think most people have heard of Robinhood have heard of things. So the issue isn't with Robinhood. It's what you're buying on Robinhood. Right. It's like you can buy ETFs. You can buy all the stuff that a lot of you know people would say is prudent investment management. So it's not the the tools necessarily. It's just how you're using them. So what I would say is like oh most people probably heard of Robinhood. Like oh have your Robinhood an account and instead of buying things like GameStop, maybe you buy something like, I don't want to give a ticker out, but just a index fund of some VTI. sort of broad. Yeah, okay. You, I did not say yeah, that. I, I, can, can say I can't recommend yes, tickers, but I-, uh, I, yeah, taught. I don't, I don't, that's a great ticker. That's all I'll say I can't, I can't recommend or, or deny it, but that's all I'm going to say is like there are tickers out there for broad based index funds that you can buy that are very good and very cheap. Right. And so that's an example. Eric just gave an example of one of them that you could choose from. So.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, Robinhood does, they are motivated to get you to trade more with mm-hmm. the confetti dropping and the, it's like a casino mindset there. But you're right, you can get that stuff there. People just tend to <laughs> go to Robin to do other things. But I like the idea of the focusing on saving and your uh, income ability when you're young, because it's also a motivating factor. There was this sort of get rich quick, easy way with the Robinhood GameStop thing. That was a big Thing and by saying, well, look, you should really focus on your earning. You can control that early on, is a good message. Now, when it comes to retirement savings, you have this really interesting um, case study or experiment they did, which I love. This listen to this: um, individuals who saw the older versions of themselves, right, through an age-progressed rendering, like you know when you digitally age yourself on that app, they allocated t- about two percent more of their pay on average to retirement. Versus people who didn't see such photos. Explain that. And I I might use that. I might put a picture of my 70-year-old self up on my mirror... You know how Rocky had that picture of Clubber Lang up there? I might I might put my 70-year-old self up there just to give myself a little extra motivation. Do, do you have an old picture of yourself uh, uh, around? No, no, I do not. I do not <laughs> use that because, I mean, there's actually other research in the
3: in that chapter where I talk about, they asked, they asked a bunch of people, like, you know, what motivates people to save? They found like, is it like a vacation? Is it your children? All this stuff. Um, besides emergencies, which people do want to save for, once that's out of the way, once your emergency fund's done, the only thing that motivates people to save is themselves, actually. So it's really like, if you want to save for your future, you have to be self. And so I think that the idea of using that face app or whatever to see an old version of yourself is you realize you're going to be an old person. You want to take care of that old person. So that's what investing is supposed to do, right? You're supposed to be replacing your income when you can no longer or don't want to work anymore. And you replace that income through investment income, right? That's kind of the, the whole idea there. And so be selfish. It's okay to be
1: selfish in that case. Isn't that so true? Like, you know, there was, I read a book. I think it might have been um, Think and Grow Rich. Uh, for, it was you put something up where you see mm-hmm. it every day. Like when I wrote my book, I had a whiteboard where I, yeah. I just clocked time that I spent mm-hmm. writing and that thing in my face every day, I'm telling you, it really just putting something up there to motivate you. I think it really, it's interesting. I, I'm not surprised that works, mm-hmm. um, but I, I would, I'm kind of curious to see an old v- version of Joel. I mean, he already looks 75. kind of old. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. It, 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 my, whenever, whenever my brother sees me, he's like, hey, the, your cul-de-sacs and your forehead are looking really
0: strong. <laughs> Power alleys. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents, people who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund. So you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ.
2: Uh, so, so Nick, let's talk a little bit more about the investing side because once you're in the market and you you have that exposure, it's common sense just to keep buying. So, mm-hmm. what what added value do you have for us, for those of us who are? active participants and are already doing what the title of your book suggests?
3: I mean, I think, you know, if it for some people that it's easy to do, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. I think the the issue is like, that's not easy for everyone, like, especially in a year like this, where we have high inflation, there's geopolitical risk, you know, uh, even bonds are declining by a, a large amount. So even things that were considered safe are not as safe as they were. Um, so there's a lot of things like that going on, where like, we have asset declines, high inflation, and people are worried. So in those cases, like just keep buying, it's it's much harder to do it. And so like I know people a lot of people joked, like, Oh, of course this book will come out at the end of a bull market, or <laughs> I just keep buying at the top. But actually by the time it came out, you know, in April of this year, like the uh, market was con- down like ten percent. Pretty yeah. good timing. I think. Yeah, yeah. So it's like I actually wrote it more for a bear market than a bull market. And so my that's one of my favorite chapter in the book's chapter seventeen, which is about like how to think about buying during a market crash, which is a much much different I have a different framework for looking at that because I think that's the only way to really kind of get through these dark well, times.
2: Well walk us through about. that because like we are we are there or so it feels like.
3: Yeah, well, I would say this is a a more minor of a mark. I mean, 20% those happen much more regularly. I think what I'm talking about is a much worse crash, but either way like the, the math happen. is the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, for example, I'll give you the math and what happened in uh COVID-19 in March 2020. So, at the time, I think at the bottom, we were down 33% going into that Monday, which was March 23rd, 2020. And so, being down roughly 33%, you know, this is just Simple math to get back to even, you have to go up 50%. And I'll just run the numbers for you. Let's say, you know, index is at 100, goes down 33% to 66. To go from 66 back to 100, you have to go up roughly 33, which is half of 66, so a 50% gain, right? And so you just do that math. The the larger the decline, the the bigger the gain to get back to even. So now, once you know that, right, that's just simple math. Once you know that, you can actually kind of back out. You can say, okay, how long do I think the market's going to take to recover? You come up with a fair estimate. You know, you can ask other people as well. And then and you can back out the market's expected return from this point back to the high, right? And so at the time, I think I asked Twitter and, uh, you know, the the median answer is two to three years. So if we're down 50%, and remember, this is not exact math, you have to do compounding, but I'm just going to make this linear. So let's say, you know, 50%, you know, divided by two, that'd be about 25% a year divided by three, you're looking at 17, 18% a year, like, annualized returns to get back to the, so like, those are great returns, like who wouldn't want to buy then? Like, th- when you look at it from that perspective, you're like, wait, this is a huge deal, right? Like if I buy right now, I'm going to be, you're going to give me 17% returns to get back to even like, just to get back to even like, that's amazing. And so of course, there's always the case where it takes longer. But my point is, let's say you're getting those 17, 18% annualized returns to get back to even, that's a huge return. And that's why when you reframe it, you're like, wow, like, why wouldn't I be buying right now? It's a clearly a, a bargain. And, and what actually happened within six months, you are at all time highs, and it was like 106% annualized returns turn or something. So absolutely absurd what happened. No one I think expected that. Not even even as optimistic as I was. I thought it was going to take like maybe two years to recover, but that's kinda how I look at it. So right now if we're down what are fourteen percent and that's not a big enough amount for me to like you know think about oh we can do the math okay what is it to get back to even maybe 15 percent let's say it takes two years you're still looking at like what seven percent returns roughly so like that's like an average year if you were by right now you're basically going to expect average returns if it takes two years to get back to a high so that's not
1: bad right consider all else so yeah. as you're talking and you talked about people oh of course this book comes out after a bull market like there's this this the bears on twitter there i I could see this title kind of just pissing them off a little like oh you just easy the fed was there yada yada Mm -hmm. or the 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 best one now do japan that's when everybody puts out charts of like how great stocks are over time like well now do japan because japan has done nothing right in your book you Mm -hmm. pointed out since 1989 Mm -hmm. the market's been basically flat what would you say to somebody who's like what if we are japan for the next 30 years I mean, that's, of course, it's plausible.
3: No one knows if that's going to happen or not. But I I, I address this in that chapter, in chapter 17, I address this. I say, let's say you'd put a dollar to the Japanese stock market every day starting in nineteen eighty. And yes, there are times when you're underwater, but if you look, because you're dollar cost averaging, you're buying over time, it's very different. You're saying the market's done nothing for 30 years. That's true if you put in a lump sum right at the peak. But how many people are investing like that? Maybe there's a Japanese businessman that sold his business in 88, said, oh, I'm not worried. And then someone convinced, okay, you should just put it all in the market. And then he puts 100% of Japanese equities in 89. Okay, think about how crazy it is. Does that. And then is, yeah, that person's underwater. But how many investors put all of their wealth into one asset, one purchase one time. It's very rare. So I'm saying if you had been owning other Asset classes you've been if if you were a Japanese investor you were diversified all those things that would have completely changed the conclusion. So I, I the saying that Japanese market has done no, nothing for thirty years that's using snap you know snapshot judgments and really you're really kind of cherry picking. I agree it's correct but also at the same time it's cherry picked. If you're buying over time the Japanese market has not done nothing for thirty years. That hasn't been great. Don't get me wrong but it's not zero and I think that's the the takeaway here.
1: And I will say you know you, um, this kind of reminds me obviously I just spent two years in Planet Bogle and he mm-hmm. was not a fan of it. International investing, or he just mm-hmm. said you don't need it because U.S. has enough overseas uh, um, uh, connection that mm-hmm. you're going to get some of that anyway. And in addition, a lot uh, American companies seem to be really the drivers across the world—the apples, the Microsofts, etc. So, I guess do you even need international? And is this just keep buying? Actually, obviously, now do Japan wouldn't or now do Europe isn't going to be as applicable because uh, the companies in America tend to be uh, really massive leaders. Relative to other companies in the world, I mean that's that looks true now. But I mean, like, so from 2010 to
3: 2019 or 2020, however you want to look at it, like the U.S. clearly outperformed international emerging whatever. But look at the decade before. Look at 2000 2009. I mean, it's a very different story. Emerging crushed the U.S. So I'm not saying that's going to happen again. We don't know the future, but to only bet on American companies, I don't necessarily agree with that because I think. Things can mean revert, things can change. And so while the US is on top now, who knows what's going to happen? And I think the best example of this is imagine a Russian investor, you know, at the beginning of 2022, right? They're like, oh, look, I have most of my stuff in Russia, Russia's great, all this. The market drops 80% in a month. Now, I don't think that's going to happen in the United States. We would have much bigger problems in our investment portfolios. But my point is, Someone who's not diversified out of their domestic market is probably going to see some sort of pain at some point. And so I'm willing to take a little bit of underperformance now by owning international stocks if that means in periods where the US is struggling, I have a little bit more of, you know, outperformance relative to the U.S. market. So
2: I'm curious just to bring it back to sort of the here and now. What what do you think changed in how you wrote the book or what you put in the book if it was a before time? before time's book like before the pandemic versus what actually wrote what what changed during COVID that um, you brought into the book
3: Uh, I don't I actually think the the best thing that helped the book for COVID was that we had the COVID crash that was something I could just use hey it's in everyone's memory it's otherwise to to talk about 2008 like, like myself I was you know 18 years old I was you know uh, entering college at the time. Like, I didn't have a job. I didn't have to worry about income. I literally started school in 08. So I remember, like, starting, you know, going my first week of cl- right before classes started. And I remember, like, seeing the market drop and everything. And Economics 101 was really popular at the time because of that. But I think, like, because it was so old, it wasn't in recent memory. But because we had that crash, it really helped the book. Because I could talk about something that's really recent. Everyone everyone investing now remembers that, right? Except unless you're, like, 16 and you kind of just started investing, like, today, like, everyone remembers covid and kind of the effects it had. So I think that's what helped the book. Other outside of that, I haven't changed much. The only thing if I could have re you know, rewritten the book or done something differently. I think I would have emphasized inflation a little bit more because you have to realize at the time. Remember, all my data is through the end of twenty twenty. Inflation was low and was going lower in twenty twenty. I'm like, I talked about inflation. I do discuss it in the book, but I didn't realize I had no clue that okay, by the time this thing comes out, which is going to be you know a year and a half later after writing and everything, that the inflation data was going to come yeah, in the where termites. It was. Yeah, the termites were going to be all over the house. Yeah, I didn't. I had no idea that, that was going to happen. And so I had a lot of people like, he doesn't even discuss inflation. Like, look at the data I had coming into this. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> inflation was going lower when I had the data. I'm like finishing this up. Like inflation was not.
1: You, you read up the too comments. Much. So yeah, so what, <laughs> no, of course I read the comments You got to read the comments. Yeah. What would you? Uh, what would you be I, saying? <laughs> or how do you respond to that's, that, that? that's group? that's a that's a double edged sword. Yeah, yeah we yeah. Can, we can get into that. Yeah. yeah, but
2: how would you re, how would you respond? And what would you have put in? How would you have expanded your
3: your uh, inflation? wisdom. I just would have included more inflation stuff. Like I've done analyses since I've just been a lot more focused on inflation. It's just because like, you know, at the time, like, you know, we haven't had it really, I mean, since the really seventies and eighties, last time we had it. so we haven't had it such a long time. I could talk about it, but it's like, people are like, why did you spend so much time talking about something that doesn't really happen anymore? And and it's not that I, I never expected inflation to happen ever again, but I address it. I just would have put more emphasis on it because people would have cared more. They would have thinking, they they would have thought that, um, you know, I had, you know, thought through it more. And so that was the only thing. I just didn't know that was going to happen. Because people are, I mean, everything's recency bias. So if inflation's crushing everything and I'm not tying on inflation, they're going to think I'm an idiot. And, I'm gonna, and I'll am And i admit, like, yeah, I didn't try to write a ton about it. So that was kind of the only thing I think I could have, it's just hard to anticipate the future. I had no idea we we're going to see 8% inflation. I
1: was completely shocked by that, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody was. Um, you know, you have a section here where you talk about inve- in the investing part about Income-producing assets, Mm -hmm. and this is clearly in the bogle Buffett mindset. You want to invest in things that produce income, right? Mm -hmm. makes sense. Money that works for you. Mm -hmm. The crypto crowd, obviously, you don't have cryptos in here. You have stocks, bonds, investment Mm -hmm. property, REITs, farmland, and small businesses. No crypto. Mm -hmm. Um, This this is a big debate, right? Crypto doesn't produce anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. You are basically uh, hoping somebody buys it from you for more than you pay. That's pretty Mm -hmm. much the deal. The crypto crowd, sometimes they'll go after the S&P 500 index fund. Mm-hmm. and i don't understand that there i mean that is a interesting gap i wonder how many young people actually understand the difference between an income producing asset and and one that doesn't like crypto because mm-hmm. it does seem the young crowd the message in the narrative of crypto it seems to be more seductive and interesting to them than the message of a boring s&p 500 index fund yeah i mean what's
3: the question is do you know do you want to do something fun or do you want to get rich? I mean, that's kind of the question. And like, I have like one of the most boring asset allocations out there, but it's working, right? And it's like, that's the key. Now, I'm not saying not to own any crypto. I actually own some crypto, but like I I say income producing assets to be 85 to 90% of your portfolio. The other 10% is safe for things like crypto, gold, art, wine. I go through the, you know, uh, through the gamut of those type of assets. So I'm not saying they don't hold any place in a portfolio. I just keep them as a smaller portion of my
1: portfolio. That was my point. I was in a uh, debate with somebody from that world, and I was like, you guys should just pitch yourself as a compliment to the boring vanilla. That's what Let I Let us say, be yeah. some exciting hot sauce to your boring meal rather than your meal sucks.
3: Yeah, yeah, I agree. But that's not that's not going to gain you followers to think like, oh, we're we're in bed with (laughs) the traditional finance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're you know, we're in with the old world. Like, no, you want to sound like you're against that old world. There's new world, old world. It just has a more it's more appeal to do that. But I mean, the rational approach is like, no, there is a place for crypto. Like, I believe that, you know, people should generally get off zero. I don't think everyone should be at zero on crypto. But at the same time, I don't think you should have anything more than 5%. Even then that's a lot cuz how volatile it is. I that's why I have 2% and I even then like, you know, some people wouldn't be comfortable with that. So I'd say like just put a very very small percentage and kind of just wait and let's wait and see what happens with this thing. So so just keep buying. Related question, what should you not buy? And th- that's a very personal question. That's like whatever you can't sleep at night with. That's it. Like I can't there's certain assets I won't buy. Like I don't generally buy gold, but I don't think that I should say that no one should buy gold. I think for certain people, there's definitely cases to be made for gold. I think gold's more of a trade than a long-term hold. There's just, I mean, there's a period of, you know, 20 something years of negative real return on gold and it's really tough to kind of hold that for me. So, you know, I can't, it's hard for me to hold an asset for 20 years and see it go absolutely nowhere. You know, there are exceptions to that. Maybe I could do that with, you know, equities in an emerging market or something, but for like something like gold where there's no intrinsic cash flows, no income, it's really tough for me to believe like, oh, the story's going to flip and everything's going to be okay. You know, I think that's why it's tougher.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. This podcast is brought to you by Invesco QQQ. What do all the greatest innovations have in common? Agents. People who participate in progress by supporting cutting-edge ideas. Invesco QQQ is a fund that allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100 all-in-one fund, so you don't have to be an inventor to help create what's next to come. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ.
2: this is an ETF podcast. We've gone a long time and we have not talked about ETFs specifically.
1: What are you mm-hmm. going to, what are you going to ask him? Sure. Yeah, I'll go there. So yeah, this is definitely sort of, mm. I think a lot of, in your book you say, I like index funds and ETFs. You basically yep. are flat out. He, you know, just um, says what he does and you don't have to do that. You know, mm-hmm. you can go active. I'm not, I'm not, I try not to be overly rigid with this, but mm-hmm. um, in the book I wrote, I write a uh, was a little section about behavior and I I think the index fund, the, the the idea of a cheap index fund or an ETF that, tra- traps, that tracks the broad market for three or four basis points is one of the most underrated um, contributors to good behavior. Because you read this book and you're like, I wonder how this would all play out if there was no such thing as a cheap index fund. And all you had was like a 80 basis point blend manager versus a small cap growth manager. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little harder to behave sometimes, especially if that manager starts underperforming. And I think that mess people up in the 80s and 90s a little bit because Mm -hmm. their fun all of a sudden was underperforming. They panic and just keep buying is a lot easier when you know you're locking into that market beta and there's a nice resignation to that. So I guess I'd like to get your thoughts on the impact that just having a near free beta exposure product has done for this concept. I think the main takeaway here is like that, you know,
3: passive vehicles have benefited investors because they're cheap and because it's easy to stick with them. And more importantly, it's like the default choice now, right? Like if you, t- if you talk to anyone and says, yeah, the default is like you buy a passive index fund, like the S&P 500 or something. And so every deviation from that, and this, this kind of goes back to what we were do- discussing with the crypto people and why don't, why aren't they just okay with like saying, Hey, you know, we can be a compliment to you guys. Cause no, it's an identity argument. And so a lot of active investors, it's an identity. I'm not a passive person. I'm, I, I'm not, I don't want to be average, even though it puts you at the 80th percentile. We can put that aside for sure. now, but I don't. I don't want to be average? I'm going to pick my own stocks and I'm going to set my own destiny. And there's all that kind of piece to it. I think what passive has done is saying like, here's the default option. And so when the market declines, it's not your fault. You didn't make a bad decision. That's just the market, right? It's outside of your control, right? It's like a hurricane came, financial hurricane. There's nothing you can do. But once you start deviating from you know market cap passive weighted portfolios, that's when you're making active choices, and that's when you start to get in your head of like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have only went in on tech stocks, or oh maybe I shouldn't have you know went in on these biotechs or whatever it is, or energy stocks, or so that's the whole point. I think another big piece of this is identity. And so what passive has done, it has removed the identity piece from investing, which allows you to kind of not worry about it. That's why when markets down 20, even when the market was down 33%, I wasn't panicking. I really wasn't like, oh my gosh, my, my portfolio is like, I'm not going to be using that money for a long time. This is going to happen. It'll recover eventually. It might take a couple of years, but that's the nature of the world. And we just got to, we'll roll with the punches. And it recovered way more quickly than I expected, right? But that's kind of the idea: is that you're going to see this stuff happen. You're going to see more crashes. We're going to see. I almost guarantee my lifetime we'll see a ten-year period where the S and P 500 is is you know has not performed has you know flat or below where it was ten years
1: prior. Yeah, I, I, so, But I do think there. It is nice to have that resignation that I've mm-hmm. got the I've got a great deal. There's mm-hmm. no reason to shift the, to switch it around mm-hmm. uh, because if let's say that market cap it wasn't it was an active fund and it's mm-hmm. underperforming. That, I think that's that makes you think. Should I be in something else? And then you jump ship, go there. And I think there's a resignation. What am I going to do? Am I going to just? Am I going to switch all these investments every two years? Eh, screw it. Um, and that is, I think, when we talk with Gino Martin Adams uh, last two weeks ago, that she talked about capitulation. And I'm like, I don't think those investors are ever going to capitulate. The passive people are really strong. They're the strong hands. They are not the weak hands that people say, and I think once that you have in here, which is fascinating, is the best performing four percent of companies explain the net gain for the entire U.S. stock market since 1926. Mm -hmm. So, if you pick those four percent, I mean, you're loving life. But (laughs) which four? I mean, which four percent? So I think that's another one: is you get your your hands on everything, and you get those. At least you know you lock in those four percent. You don't get all of it, though. Um this this is why I'm bearish ESG a little bit because on the 4% includes Exxon Mobil, Apple, Microsoft, General Electric, IBM, etc. ESG, what do you think of this? Like this is it, you wouldn't get Exxon. You'd probably, you know, so there are and Tesla is now not in the S&P 500 ESG. Um is that in your eyes just another active active management in disguise or do you really think this is a better way to invest in your just keep buying premise? I mean, I think so. I think what the industry is going
3: to eventually move toward is something like, you know, a direct indexing or something we call custom indexing where you get to pick and choose kind of based on your personal beliefs. And so I understand why people would do that. At the end of the day, the counter argument is, okay, well, if you're doing these ESG type moves, what if all the companies you don't buy end up outperforming because no one else is buying them. So in theory, you're under allocating capital for some reason relative to the market portfolio. So someone else is going to over and they're going to outperform you. And so the question is, do you want to take that money and grow it to as much as possible? And then donate to causes you care about, you know, or do you want to just not invest in the underlying companies? And those are the two ways you can do it. And I think they're both valid. And it's a question of some people like, Oh, I don't want to give my money to a gun manufacturer. It's like, it's not technically going to them. But in theory, they could buy back stock, they can sell stock. And so the equity could be used for that purpose. So yeah, I don't I don't have the, a great answer there. But I think we're going to see this area evolve as like kind of custom indexing comes in where people are going to be able to allow their choices to be dictated in their portfolio. So
1: I will say custom indexing, I'm bearish on it. I'll just get on the record. I think anything trying to to dislodge a three basis point index fund has a two, it's a very tall hill to climb. I think for very wealthy individuals, it might work or hardcore hippie ESG types, Mm -hmm. but that's not ESG investing because a lot of these companies that you would think in your perception are not good, like Exxon, they actually score pretty well on ESG scores. Um, Perception of people people's perception is not really the same as an esg scoring system mm-hmm. um but i agree with you at least it's custom to your liking i just mm-hmm. think in 10 years if that custom portfolio underperforms you're going to have a, a seller's buyer's remorse um mm-hmm. plus i just think dislodging three basis point beta is just people love that stuff man i mean mm-hmm. it's it's like such a good deal so but anyway i debated this with uh, josh and mm-hmm. michael batnick on an episode of um the compound and friends. Mm-hmm. If anyone wants to listen to, we had a nice long, mm-hmm. lengthy debate mm-hmm. on direct indexing. Uh, we got to get. Uh, uh, we, have, we have to do an episode on that soon, Joel. Mm-hmm. Joel, that's gonna be a good one. Add it to the list. Okay,
2: so earlier you said you can't recommend a ticker, but that doesn't mean that we can't ask you for your favorite ETF ticker, um, which is. A question that we always
3: ask. At the end I guess of the okay. If I have to, my favorite is VOO, the VOO, of course. My dad, well, my, my my dad has this funny thing. He says I'm hedging my uh, my VOO exposure with SPY, and I'm like, oh, I was like, I couldn't <laughs> handle. I was like, what is like? I didn't know that was possible. I know it's just a joke. My, wait a
1: second, my <laughs> head hurts. He says I'm hedging my VOO exposure with uh, SPY, right? Uh, it's wait, like that, that's basically <laughs> like issuer hedging. Uh, just in no, case yeah, goes out no, of
3: no, it's a, it was a joke more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, oh, I just hedged my VOO with SPY. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like yeah. you're all in. Yeah, yeah, you're all exactly. But, yeah, that's by. what I would yeah. say, too. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah he's
1: just—he's on the Just Did he do? too. Does he do that because of you, or did you get that from him?
3: No, uh, he does it because, you know, I obviously wrote about it and stuff, but he, like, edits my blog, so every week he reads oh, every post. Oh, yes, that your goes dad? Out. Yeah, my blog. Oh, father. that's cool. He didn't edit the book. We actually got a professional yeah. editor. but he's edited a lot of the posts and all the material that went in there. Roughly half of
1: it's old material, half's new, I would say, so. I gotta say, I felt like when I read this, I was sitting with Ritholtz Advisors and mm-hmm. almost like getting some of the secret sauce mm-hmm. on how you talk to clients. Is that is that fair? Uh, I mean a lot of the ideas that you know i have and they have
3: are very some are already aligned already that's why it works so well i didn't have to come in and like rethink everything like oh i don't agree with this and i'm saying we're not 100 aligned on everything but a lot of the core ideas are there and like that's we would agree on on a lot of the stuff there does, does that mean we agree on everything no There's certain things where we may not agree perfectly on um and i and I've, I've gone back and forth on some of these things you know whether that means stuff like trend following whether it's how we allocate to crypto all sorts of stuff like that where i can i don't think our firm's doing anything incorrect or bad or anything like that but where we may not not be in 100% agreement. That's fine. Like not everyone agrees. Like for example, I have a whole chapter on don't buy individual stocks, right? And I know there are people in my um at my firm that own individual stocks. Not the it's not the bulk of their money, it's a small percentage, but still it's like something that I generally don't do. And once again, you know, that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, let's think about the overall picture and are we, do we agree on the core tenets? And we do. And so that's where, if you feel like that, that's because we generally agree on a lot of the core
1: But like if someone tenets. goes to Ritholtz and they're sitting down, you kind of go over like, well, let's save first, mm-hmm. let's look at that. You know, you got to go over that well it stuff. depends
3: where they are, right? If you're if you're right. if you're 75 years old and retired, savings is not gonna matter. It's oh you have a huge right. nest egg. let's figure out how to protect that. So it's once again, the, the, the ideas here can be applied generally, but yes, I, I kind of agree with what you're saying. So
2: Nick Majuli, thanks for joining us on Trillions. Appreciate it, Joel. Appreciate Eric. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Trillions. Until next time, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you'd like to listen. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter. I'm at Joel Weber Show. He's at Eric Balchunas. This episode of Trillions was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcast. Bye.
0: You don't have to be a rocket scientist to help realize a mission to Mars. Become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ.
4: at Qatar